All right, as we prepare to study God's Word together, if you have access to a Bible and you'd like to open it to Revelation chapter 5, there at the very end of at the very end of your Bible, if you have access to Bible on your to the Bible on your phone, feel free to bring that out as as well. Now you may say, uh, no offense, Owen, but that's kind of a strange place to go on a Christmas message. Why, why look at that passage together? Well, what I want us to be able to do is, as we study the Scripture this morning, that maybe we can see in a fresh way uh, and literally from a fresh perspective. What does Christmas look like from heaven looking down? We know that story from the earthly viewpoint. We read it, we see it played out by little kids, we hear it spoken by our children and lived out in their lives. What does it look like though to see Christmas maybe from a different perspective? That Jesus did what we could never do and he did it in a way that we could never do it And he accomplished results that went far beyond what anybody could ever imagine. And as we study scripture this morning together, if you would like to, if you want to turn your bulletin over to the back, there's just a couple of very basic points that will guide us through looking at this passage together. But as we think about this idea this morning of Christmas, it occurred to me that many times over this past year, this isn't new to 2016, but it's been very prevalent in 2016, of people talking about the end of the world. 2016, the Cubs won the World Series, end of the world. Uh, You look at our political landscape, end of the world. You may have had things happen in your life where it felt like the world was ending. It seems like when things come into our life, they don't come at one at a time, they come in floods. When it rains, it pours, and this may have been a year where it felt like it poured, And sometimes in the midst of those times, it literally feels like life is coming to an end, that the world is ending. And scripture is very clear in speaking about the fact that one day the Lord will bring this present world to its perfect conclusion. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth that he's working toward that plan. But scripture also speaks of us living in the last days. And living in the last days doesn't have anything to do with what you saw when you walked through the checkout line at Walmart. It doesn't have anything to do with what you read on the internet or anything like that because the Bible says we've actually been living in the last days for the last 2,000 years. Hebrews chapter one, we're not gonna look at this particular passage, but I want you to see it on the screen here in just a moment. Hebrews chapter one, verses one through two, it says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, this was written, Hebrews 1 was written in about the year 70 AD, give or take a little bit. So almost 2,000 years ago, someone was saying, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. You see, Jesus has been at work since the creation of the world. And God, in sending his son to us with that story of Christmas, the coming of Jesus initiated, brought about those last days. When, so when you hear people say, we're living in the last days, you can just look at them and say, yeah, I know, we've been living in the last days for 2,000 years. Since the coming of Jesus, this plan has been put in action. But when we think about the last days, we can't help but think about the final book in the Bible. 
And if you don't consider yourself much of a Bible scholar, maybe you don't consider yourself a very religious person, I can show you how at Christmas lunch today to be the religious expert. So I can't promise this will work, but if you go to Christmas lunch today with family or friends, ask someone who wasn't here this morning, ask someone, hey, what's the last book in the Bible? Can't promise this will work, but most likely what they will say is Revelations. And then you can look back at them and say, no, it's Revelation, and then drop the mic and just walk away from the, uh, or drop the fork and just walk away from the table. Like you're the religious expert in the family now because you know that the final book in the Bible is not Revelations. It's not all these things developing. The final book in the Bible is Revelation. It's the revelation of the victory of Jesus Christ. It's God showing us through his son how he's going to bring everything to perfect completion. Revelation chapter five, verse one. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So what we have going on in Revelation 5 is a carryover from the story in Revelation 4. So you really need to read 4 and 5 together to get the idea because in 4 you see this scene in heaven of worship being given to God as he sits on the throne. It's this incredible picture of worship happening, happening from a heavenly perspective. So Revelation 4 begins this idea. And then here at the beginning of Revelation 5 you see God continuing to sit on the throne. I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. So in God's right hand, in this picture here in Revelation 5, he's holding a scroll. This word for scroll here is a very general term. It, it can mean just a book, and at this time in the first century, you were starting to have these books that were put together more like our modern books. So it may be referring to that, but more than likely, it refers to an actual scroll. So kids, if you take your bulletin, and you roll it up to look like a scroll, that's essentially the idea that, that's going on here. And so, so God is holding this scroll, but the way this material was made when they would write, make this writing document, the way it was made is the fibers, as the paper was pressed together, on one side of the page, the fibers in the document would run horizontally. So you think about notebook paper that you would buy for school, the fibers would run horizontally so it was easy to write and stay in the line. If you turned it over on the back, the fibers ran vertically, so almost nobody wrote on the back of a piece of paper. I know that some of you love trees and you hate to not use a full piece of paper and so you always print front back or you always write on the front and back of everything. In the ancient world, you almost never wrote on the back because it was almost impossible to write across these fibers that ran horizontally. But it says here that this document was written within and without, or on the front and the back. So it tells us from the very beginning that this is the fullest message possible. That there is a message here that has to be given, and it's so full, it's so complete, that somehow it had to be written on the front and the back of the scroll. And not only that, but it says that this scroll was sealed with seven seals. When someone would send a message to someone else and they would use a scroll, they would tie it with a piece of string, and where they tied that string, they would put a piece of wax 
to seal that string in place. And then on that piece of wax, they would use a ring that had an image on it, and they would press into that wax, and it would provide a seal so that nobody could break into it and see what was written there, only the person that it was intended for. And if you broke the seal, unless you had that ring, there was no way you could seal it back and feel that it wasn't tampered with. Strangely enough, some of you may have spent a lot of money on these type of stamps recently. If you've done graduation announcements recently, or you've done wedding announcements, this whole idea of using a piece of wax to seal an envelope has actually made a comeback. So there's nothing new under the sun. Everything that was old becomes new again. All of your clothes that you threw away when you were younger are back in fashion. So this is the same idea. In the year 70 AD, they were sealing scrolls with a piece of wax, and in 2016, we're still doing the same thing. But it says here that was sealed with seven seals. Numbers in Revelation take on new meaning. The number seven is usually a number for completion. It's a divine number. So we know that this scroll is sealed, and it's a divine message. What's in the scroll? Well, strangely enough, we don't exactly know from this passage what's in the scroll. Some people think this document here is the Lamb's Book of Life that's mentioned later in the book of Revelation. Probably not. It just doesn't fit with what's going on right here in the book of Revelation. Most likely what this scroll represents that God is holding in his right hand is it represents his final plan. It represents the fulfillment of his plan for mankind for the world, for history, how he's going to bring everything to completion. So the background here, if you want to make a note and go back and read it later, the background here is Ezekiel chapter 2. You see in Ezekiel chapter 2, Ezekiel the prophet receiving a scroll. And in that scroll that Ezekiel received had these judgments against sin, these judgments against evil, but it also had the promise of victory. So what you see this scroll happening here in Revelation chapter 5 is it's a scroll that says that God will judge sin, that he will defeat evil, and that he will bring victory through Jesus Christ. That's what happens in this scroll here. So you get down to verse 2, and it says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? Well, verse 3 says, no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. You see here in verses three and four that John wants so badly to know what's in this scroll. He knows it's a divine message. He knows that the opening of the scroll will reveal God's plan. It will set into motion God's plan to bring everything to complete fulfillment, to judge sin and to bring victory. He knows that's going to happen, but he can't find anyone to open it. This is how I feel opening my kids' Christmas presents. I don't know how people box things together now, like toys the most The cheapest, simplest toy is put in the hardest to open package you've ever seen in your life. And so you're sitting there trying to tear into the box and nobody, people are weeping because the kid wants their present so bad and you can't get into the box. And this is the image here. It's like, how do I break into this scroll? How am I going to get into this? Who's worthy to do this? The idea that's going on here is John, in some way, is reenacting the story of Israel. Remember with these Advent candles, these Advent candles in many ways represent the waiting that God's people did for him to send the Messiah, for him to to send the Savior. They wept 
They mourned, they waited, they knew the rescuer was coming, but they didn't know when, and they waited and they waited, and John is reenacting that. But when it says that he weeps because he can't find anyone to open the scroll, he's also representing what humanity feels, what every one of us feels when we're looking for answers in life and we can't find them. You may be here this morning and you're desperate for answers in life. You're going through things that you can't explain, that you can't find reasons for, you're searching for hope, you're searching for peace, you're searching for answers, and sometimes it brings you to the point of tears. This is the idea that John is acting out right here. But then we find in verse five that there actually is a savior. Verse five says, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. In other words, there is a savior, there is an answer. Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So we see God providing a savior who is able to do what no one else could do. Part of the story of Christmas is that it forces us to realize that there are certain things in our life, there are certain pain, certain brokenness, certain sin that we are never going to be able to fix in ourselves by ourselves. We live in a world that says pick yourself up by your own bootstraps, figure it out, get on with your life, and the Christmas story comes and says, you know what, there are certain things that you're never going to be able to solve on your own, that you need a savior to do for you what you could never do for yourself. And sometimes this is the hardest thing, because then we say, you know what, church is just a crutch. Those people just have religion because they can't solve their problems on their own. Actually, yeah. That, that is true. That's exactly why we need a savior is because there is pain. There are things that we need done for us that we can never do on our own and yet God has provided the answer through Jesus. How do you provide that answer? It says the lion of the tribe of Judah was here. This is Genesis chapter 49 being reenacted. The lion is the one who would come with strength and would come with power. How many of you have read Chronicles of Narnia or seen the Chronicles of Narnia movies by, by C.S. Lewis? So in the Chronicles of Narnia, you have Aslan, who is the lion of power and humility, who is there to play that role of what it looks like for there to be a rescuer and a savior. And so there's this lion of the tribe of Judah. And then it goes on, it says, the root of David. The root of David goes back to Isaiah chapter 11, that when God sent the Messiah, the Messiah would be empowered by the Holy Spirit and he would bring peace to the world. So the root of David is tying Jesus back into that Davidic royal kingdom line, but also showing that he would do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what we find in the Christmas story and what we find in Revelation 5 is that Jesus did for us what we can never do for ourselves. But the power of that is he did for us what we can never do for ourselves in a way that no one else could ever do it. Look in verse six to see what, this, what I mean by this. Verse six, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So just before, in verse five, this elder had said, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. So John turns around, and what does John expect to see? He expects to see a lion. 
and he turns around and instead he sees a lamb. Not an animal that represents power, but a lamb, an animal that represents one that is helpless. One that does not have the strength or power or dominion of a lion, but a lamb that has been slain and yet is still living. One who has died and yet is still alive. One who didn't come with the power of the world, but came to give his life. And yet show us that it's through death that we truly have life. He comes as a lion that's been slain, or a lamb that has been slain. But not only that, but this lamb has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Horn in the book of Revelation is usually an image for power. Eye is usually an image for knowledge. So this lamb has perfect power and perfect knowledge, but this power and this knowledge comes by the power of the Spirit of God, not by worldly power. Zechariah chapter four is part of the background for what's going on here. Zechariah four six says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Don't miss that this is the core to Christianity and this is the core of the Christmas story. That when God brought salvation, when God did for us what we could never do for ourselves, he didn't do it by coming with a great army. He didn't do it by coming with a shock and awe power strategy. He did it by coming to an unwed teen mom, to a carpenter who lived in the backwoods, to a small baby whom he had sent as his son, that when God does his work of salvation, he does it in a way that we would never expect, in a way that we could never imagine, in a way that we would never be able to do. If you're here this morning, and Christianity's not really your thing, religion's not really your thing, you're not sure about faith, I don't know your story, but one of the things that may turn you off to religion is religion often looks like a pride game, or even worse, it looks like a power game, that you're just trying to, you're out for what you can get for yourself, that religious leaders are just in it for themselves, they're trying to gain power, they're trying to gain pride. Let me just assure you that that's not the story of Christmas, and that is not the story of Jesus Christ, because he did not come with the pride of humanity, he came with the humility of God to show us that victory is found not through human might, but through the humble power of the Spirit of God. In church, in 2016, we have to hear this loud and clear, that our goal is not political power, our goal is not economic power, our goal is not social power. In a world where you're always trying to get ahead, where you hide your own weaknesses and exploit other people's weaknesses, that that is not the way of our Savior. That the way of Jesus is that he brought victory, he brought hope, he brought peace, he brought love through perfect humility, through doing for us what we can never do for ourselves and doing it in a way that we can never do. What's the result of that? Let's look at verse nine and we'll get ready to wrap up. What's the result of what Jesus did? Verse nine says, as a result, they sang a new psalm saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people 
and nation. Stop right there just for a second. The Jewish people expected that with the coming of the Messiah, that the Messiah would lead an army against Rome, against their great enemy Rome, and Rome would be defeated, and the Jewish people would find that independence that they had always hoped for as a nation that they had searched for and even found in small parts over the centuries. But when Jesus comes, he's not trying to build up one nation and one people. He is going to ransom people from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue, from every place who would come before God. Don't forget, Jesus isn't the American God. He's definitely not the white American God. He's not the God of one people or one nation or one location. He has come so that people from all places will be brought together. Don't forget the Christmas story involves the wise men, the magi, those who would come from outside Israel but would come to worship the Lord. The Christmas story involves the shepherds who were the great outcasts of the ancient world. If the shepherds walked into the room this morning, we would all do a double take and think they don't belong here. But that's what God does over and over and over again is he brings together people who don't seem to belong here. He doesn't bring the powerful, he doesn't bring the prideful, he doesn't bring the rich, he brings together those who realize, Lord, without you I have nothing, and I come before you, and I worship you. And the result of this is that in verse 10, these people that God has brought together says he has made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What's happening here is we're being reminded that when Jesus came, he didn't come just to save us individually from our sins so we could go to heaven one day. That's part of the story, but it's so much more than that. That when Jesus came as the Messiah, he was creating for God a people who would be a part of the kingdom of God, who would bring the kingdom of God on earth. You may have never been called a priest before. Sometimes, as a pastor, I'm confused and called a priest sometimes, and I just kind of roll with it, because in Scripture, we find that all of us who are in Christ are truly priests. We play a role between people and God and between God and people, and yet we're able to come and be worshiping before God, just as a priest would, that we're made right with God. When Jesus came, The result was not just that he would solve our little problems and we could go on with our lives. When Jesus came, he did so much more than that. He was in process of shaping a people who would be a part of God's kingdom and who would live that kingdom out here on earth. How do we do that? Well, there's probably 10, 15, 20, 100 ways that we would do that. But one of the ways we do that is we do that when we gather to worship. Look down in verse 11. I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. If you've ever thought, or if you think even at this moment right now, you know what, I don't really have anything against Jesus. I think he was a good teacher, probably an even better person, 
but I've never understood why people make such a big deal of him. Why would they worship him? It's because when Jesus came as the Messiah, he came as God with us. He came as the one who would be worthy of all worship. He came as the creator and the ruler, as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He came as the wonderful counselor and the mighty God, the picture of the eternal father and the prince of peace. He came as the one who is over every government and who upholds every nation. He came as the one who alone can provide justice and righteousness. He came as the light of the world and the source of all joy. He did not come as a consultant to help us have a little bit better life on our own. He came as the king who is worthy of our lives. And so at Christmas, when we see Jesus there as the savior of the world, we don't see him as one who might help us on our way. We see him as the one who is the way and is the truth and is the life. As you think about what is it to respond to this Jesus? What is it to give my life to him? It's that you would trust him and that you would worship him. That you would say, everything that I am, I give to you. If you're here this morning and you think, I've never seen Jesus in that way. I've never thought of him in that way. I pray that God would work in your heart, that you would trust him, that you would repent of your sins, and that you would give your life to him. And we would love nothing more than to be able to tell you more about what it looks to follow after him. If you're here this morning and you think, you know what, I agree with you. I believe all those things that you said about Jesus. But to be honest, I've been treating him as a consultant more than a king. Use Christmas to turn back to him as the king. To say, I need to get serious about this. I need to get serious about what it is to be a part of his kingdom. What it is to live in this world as a part of the people that God is creating to worship him. We're going to have a couple of opportunities in our service for you to respond to the Lord. As soon as I pray here in just a second, we're going to watch a video that portrays Isaiah chapter 9 in the Christmas story in a very unique way. During that video, we have some folks that are going to pass the offering plates around. If you have a Christmas offering that you want to give and worship to the Lord, you'll be able to do that. If you have one of those green prayer cards and you would like to put that in the offering plate, you can do that. Immediately after the offering, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper together as an act of worship. And if you're here and you know you haven't been taking your faith seriously, but you are ready to turn back to the Lord, to remember what it is to know him as King of kings and Lord of lords, that you'll be able to worship him this morning through taking the Lord's Supper. And then we'll sing a final song and we'll be dismissed. Let me pray for us right now. If you'd bow your head and close your eyes with me, I'm gonna pray for us and then we're going to move in to taking the offering and, and celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Father, we live in a world where a lot of people talk about the end of the world. And that can create a lot of fear. It can create a lot of uncertainty. Father, I know that there are folks here this morning who are hurting, who are going through painful times in life. It's difficult to see past those times right now. Father, help us to know in these moments that we don't look within ourselves for the answers. It's not about trying harder it's not about just getting past this. 
It's about turning our eyes to look to you, to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Father, if for a moment we ever think that religion is about pride or power, God, that you would humble us and remind us of the picture of Jesus that we see at Christmas. God, let us give ourselves fully to you at this moment. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.